0: Well good morning. So good to worship with all of you and I'm so grateful for this opportunity to gather around uh, the Word of the Lord with a Christian community, a community of people that uh, believe in the power of God's Word. As I was preparing this week, I'm reminded of the fact that God's Word that has spoken uh, a long time ago um, through Jesus Christ, that God's Word remains relevant throughout all generations and that it still speaks so powerfully today and so i'm glad and uh, honored that i have the opportunity to expound upon god's word with all of you today let's spend just a moment in prayer god i thank you for this community and every opportunity we have to gather around your word And as we gather, O Lord, open our eyes that we might see you and follow in your ways. In Jesus' name, amen. If there's one thing that I've learned about myself, it's that I am a creature of habit. And one of the ways this expresses itself is through my morning routine. You see, every morning I have a repeatable set process, a routine that I go through. For me, this means that I wake up at the same time every single morning. I make my cup of coffee, I settle my mind with some deep breathing, and then I spend time in prayer, spend time with the Lord in prayer. And almost every morning, I pray the same prayer. Actually, it's not just a prayer, it's a prayer liturgy that's composed of words spoken by Jesus and prayers of his followers throughout history. And in this liturgy is Matthew chapter five, verse one through 12, the Beatitudes. And nearly every morning for the past five months, I get to verse six of the Beatitudes, and I pause there because I feel like there's something in this verse that I need to be paying attention to. You see, it's here that Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled." And so knowing that I would be preaching, I felt no other option but to turn my attention to Matthew 5, verse 6, "'Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness.'" You see, this verse is right in the middle of the Beatitudes, and the Beatitudes are right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is the longest, continuous discourse of Jesus in the New Testament. And it's one of the most widely quoted sections of scripture. Within the church we are familiar with many of the sayings of Jesus that make up the Sermon on the Mount. We can probably quote several verses from memory, but the whole of the sermon, this is what I believe and what I've witnessed, the whole of the sermon and the kind of character and conduct and community that it envisions is often missing in the church, I believe this reveals that our ability to quote Jesus does not easily translate into a community that follows him more closely. See, this has something to do with the way we read Scripture. When reading the Sermon on the Mount or any passage of Scripture, for that matter, I believe we have to resist the tendency within us to read it with an individualistic lens. At least in the Western world, this is our default way of reading Scripture. I believe this is in part due to the fact that we have the luxury of reading the Bible in isolation from the larger Christian community. The original readers and hearers of God's word did not have this kind of accessibility. Just recently, I came across my childhood Bible. I actually brought it here with me this morning. I've had this Bible for over 30 years. It was given to me when I was about eight years old, and I came across it the other day, and I was showing it to my wife and telling her stories about how I used to read it. And she actually pointed out to me that in multiple places in this Bible, and I never noticed this till just a couple of weeks ago, that somehow I misspelled my own first name, even here, right here on the edge of the pages, Wesley, W-E-S-E-L-Y. John Wesley would not have welcomed me in his church, I'm sure. There's all the obvious signs in this Bible that it belonged to a young boy. I treasure this Bible because I can remember sitting on the edge of my bed at the age of eight or so, alone in my room, reading it. The foundation of my faith was formed through the texts that are found in this Bible, In fact, if you flip through it, you'll notice some of the passages that I've highlighted and circled and underlined. These verses are verses that felt important and relevant to me at the time, and I'm grateful for this Bible. However, I'm aware that the practice of reading the Bible in isolation, while it may have helped me become more biblically literate, it did not necessarily help me follow Jesus more closely in community. Let me unpack that just a little bit further. You see, as a result of our modern technological advances, Jesus' words that were once proclaimed to the crowds on the mountainside are now being read in isolation at the bedside. Jesus' words that were once spoken in public spaces are now more often read quietly in our private studies. They were once loudly proclaimed, and now they're softly projected through our earbuds and through the tiny speakers and our personal listening devices. Now, I'm thankful for the accessibility and the portability of the scriptures. However, I'm keenly aware that there's a risk associated with reading the Bible and listening to the scriptures in isolation from the larger community of people gathered by and around Jesus. You see, this practice of reading the Bible in isolation content conditions us to read the Bible through this individualistic lens, which is all too often, it produces a faith that is both personal and dangerously private. It robs the church of the power that's displayed when we live out our faith together. And I believe we must resist this tendency You see, the words of Jesus that were originally spoken to the community gathered around them, it was originally spoken by Jesus to the community gathered around him to form them. And today he's speaking to the community that gathers around him to form us. Therefore, the Sermon on the Mount is not a personal constitution, but it's the constitution of the community that Jesus is gathering around himself. It begins with the Beatitudes, which are not commands for us, but they're thresholds into a new way of thinking. And they confront us with this question. If we who gather around Jesus are formed by the message of Jesus, what would happen? What kind of community would we be? how would we show up in the world? How would we be perceived? How would we be received by the world? Now, I believe we could spend all day exploring the ways Jesus intended these scriptures to inform, inform his community that gathered around him. But being that I would like to be asked to preach again, we will not spend all day, and I will attempt to stay within the boundaries of time. In short, I believe Jesus is forming a countercultural community that's most commonly referred to as the kingdom of God. And God's kingdom, as Jesus imagined it, and as it actually is, is a countercultural, subversive, revolutionary community. Citizenship requires that we abandon our allegiances to the kingdoms of this world and pledge our allegiance to Christ and his kingdom. It has no boundaries or borders. As a result, this ever-expanding kingdom of God shows up as a threat to the powers of this world. And this is clear from the way Jesus ends the Beatitudes. He says, blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. I love that with Jesus, there's no bait and switch here. Jesus is telling it like it is. The kingdom of God will not be well-received by the world. Blessed are you when people revile you. That sounds violent. Persecute you. That is violent. And utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. In other words, you, community of people gathered by and around Jesus, you will be persecuted by the world because you show up as a threat to the powers of the world. Imagine how strange Jesus' words must have sounded to those who gathered around him on the mountainside to hear him preach. Jesus was still a relatively unknown street preacher with only a dozen or so people committed to his cause. Surely some who were in the crowd found it comical to hear this young street preacher teaching as though the world would be turned upside down by this relatively small band of disciples. But Jesus continued to teach with confidence, knowing that the kingdom of God had arrived and that the announcement was not a hypothetical invitation, but it was a holy call to come and join in what God is doing in the world. The Sermon on the Mount is an invitation to the community gathered around Jesus to step through this threshold of the Beatitudes, to be naturalized as citizens of heaven where the deepest longing and the highest value is the expansion and expression of God's kingdom to the corners of the earth. And so in my quest, and my hope in our quest to respond to Jesus more fully, As a citizen of God's kingdom, I read the Beatitudes daily as a way of pledging my allegiance to God's kingdom. It's a ritualistic reminder of who I am. And this is where I keep encountering Matthew 5, verse 6. You see, there it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And this is where I pause every single morning And begin to imagine how God is using these words to form the community gathered around him today. Now, I don't think we need to spend a lot of time unpacking the words hunger and thirst. These are concepts that we're familiar with. When you're without food for a certain amount of time, you get hungry. You desire it. When you're without water, the same is true. In its absence, you get thirsty. You desire it. And ever since I was a child, I've had this habit of, whenever I'm hungry and want something to eat, I would go to the refrigerator and I would open the door and I would just stare in it, hoping to see something that I wanted to eat. I still do that today, by the way. And even when I know there's nothing appetizing in there, even when I know that the refrigerator is empty and there's nothing in there that I want, I somehow imagine that something will appear when I open the door. And so my imagination leads me to action, to opening the door. I can't help myself. My hunger expresses itself through action, even if the action is the inaction of simply standing there staring into the fridge. It doesn't make sense. But I think Jesus is making a point here that hunger and thirst are desires that imagine the existence of satisfaction. Hunger and thirst are desires that imagine the existence of satisfaction and then they manifest themselves through action. But what does it mean for us to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Jesus uses the word righteousness five times in the Sermon on the Mount. He uses it here in Matthew 5, verse six, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then in Matthew 5, verse 20, he says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then in Matthew 6, verse one, he says, beware of practicing your piety or your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. And then in Matthew 6, verse 33, Jesus instructs his disciples, strive for the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But I think the most alarming and somewhat perplexing and most relevant use of righteousness is right here in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, verse 10. Because it's here that Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven." This clues us into the kind of righteousness that Jesus is talking about here. It's offensive righteousness, which has me wondering, why would anybody be offended by righteousness? You see, the New Testament teaches that righteous character includes things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, but those I don't think, are very offensive. The New Testament also teaches us that a righteous person practices purity of speech, faithfulness in marriage, love of neighbor, punctuality, integrity, honesty, and those don't seem like the kind of actions that would solicit much persecution either. So when I read Matthew 5, I can't help but think that Jesus has something more in mind about our Christian, than our Christian character and conduct when he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, if we read the New Testament closely, we'll see that the word righteousness is used in at least three different ways. One is legal righteousness. Legal righteousness is about our relationship being made right with God through faith in Christ alone. To me, though, it seems highly unlikely that this is the kind of righteousness that Jesus is talking about that will earn us, or solicit persecution. Another aspect of righteousness is moral righteousness, and that's what I was just talking about, this Christian character and conduct. The Pharisees were obsessed with moral righteousness, and they weren't the object of much persecution. And in fact, Jesus says that our righteousness ought to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. So what does it mean for our righteousness to ex- exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and scribes? Some have concluded that Jesus is using righteousness in Matthew 5 to promote purity of heart. And while this may be at least partly true, I don't see how a pure heart solicits persecution either. And that brings us to this third aspect of righteousness in the New Testament that some have called social righteousness. Social righteousness has broad and far-reaching societal effects that are bound to offend the powers of this world. John Stott says this about Matthew 5, verse 6, and its use of righteousness. He says, Social righteousness, as we learn from the law and the prophets, is concerned with with seeking man's liberation from oppression, together with the promotion of civil rights, justice in the courts, integrity in business dealings, and honor in the home and family affairs, Thus, Christians are committed to hunger for righteousness in the whole community as something pleasing to God. In other words, he's telling us that social righteousness has societal effects, societal implications. And I can imagine social righteousness being offensive. And so I'm left to conclude that when Jesus refers to righteousness in the Beatitudes, he's referring to this much broader definition of righteousness— That includes justice. And if this is true, I believe that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness could easily be translated blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice. This is a fitting translation given that justice is a biblical motif that winds its way through the entire Bible. God is All throughout Scripture and in history and today, God is the God of justice. Not only is God the God of justice, but he desires to act justly through us. This is reflected through many biblical passages and particularly in the writings of the prophets. If you look at Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 3, Jeremiah writes, Thus says the Lord, act with justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor anyone who has been robbed and do no wrong or violence to the alien, the orphan, the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place. Micah, the prophet, says in chapter 6, verse 8, He's told you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. All throughout scripture, we see that God is undoubtedly the God of justice. He demands, and he demands, that those who call upon his name, who gather around him in community, act justly. And in this cultural moment, and this is why this verse feels particularly relevant, in this cultural moment, there are cries for justice resounding from Louisville Kentucky, Portland, Oregon, New York City, Atlanta, Georgia, and many cities in between. A protest movement has swept across our nation like never before, and the protesters are hungry for justice, and their thirst is worsened by the repeated acts of violence against black and brown Bodies, and what I'm witnessing is that the community that's gathered around Jesus is often failing to imagine a world where there's justice for Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Ahmaud Aubrey, Rashad Brooks, and the other black and brown bodies who can no longer imagine a world, a more just world for themselves. And when our imagination fails, our actions follow. You see, Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, is not a call to action first, but it's first and foremost an invitation to imagine a more just world. And in this cultural moment, it's calling us to imagine a world where the lives of black and brown brothers and sisters are not unjustly cut short. And the church, if we're gonna remain relevant, it must not allow our lack of understanding to prevent us from imagining, imagining a more just world. When we engage in this kind of imaginative work, I believe we'll see that the injustices did not materialize when the individuals came face to face with the police, but that injustice is woven into the fabric of our nation. Injustice is leading up to the proliferation of these violent encounters. I believe this kind of imaginative work that the scriptures are calling us to carries us below the surface and makes it possible for us to see the deeper historical roots of systemic injustice in our nation. This kind of imagination that Matthew 6 is inviting us to engage in ask the question what sociological and structural dynamics are leading to these violent encounters. Matthew 5, verse 6 is inviting us to imagine a world, to imagine a world, where these structural and sociological dynamics do not exist. Now, I personally have been engaging in this kind of imaginative work, and I've come to see how many of my simple, everyday decisions disproportionately benefit some and contribute to the further disenfranchisement of others. This has included an assessment of the artists I support, the businesses I frequent, the books I read, the voices I listen to, the institutions I embed myself within, and even the words that I allow to come out of my mouth. I've had to face the hard truth that there's implicit bias embedded within me. And I've, had to come, see, I've come to see ways that I'm entangled in a system of inequity a system that does not work for the flourishing of all people. So I've been inviting others to gather around Jesus with me to engage in courageous conversations, to practice self-examination and repentance. And as we do this, we inevitably see ways that our lives can be disentangled from the systems of injustice and oppression of this world. We're seeing how we can live lives that are more biblically faithful, culturally corrective, and socially just. And it's this kind of imaginative work that aligns us with the Old Testament prophets who dared to imagine a more just world. They dared to imagine a more just, fair, equal society. Let us not forget that it's the prophet Isaiah who originally said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. He sent me to proclaim good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and to release the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Sounds to me like Isaiah was imagining a more just society. I don't believe it's a coincidence that Jesus ends the Beatitudes with a nod to the prophets. He says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you you see jesus is calling us the community that gathers around him to engage our prophetic imagination, to envision a more just world and imagine what that would look like. As we hunger and thirst for righteousness and envision it, I believe we'll see how God is calling us to move from imagination into implementation, from inaction into action. Walter Brueggemann expresses this in a way that I think is helpful for us today. He says the prophet does not ask if the vision can be implemented for questions of implementation are of no consequence until the vision can be imagined. The imagination must come before implementation. And then Brueggemann critiques the world by saying this, our culture is competent to implement almost anything and to imagine almost nothing. You see, while our world is incompetent in this kind of imagination, the church, by the power and guidance of the Holy Spirit, is equipped to imagine a more just world. Therefore, I implore you, my brothers and sisters, let us not be like the world. Let us imagine together a more just society for all people, and then let us be led by the Holy Spirit from imagination to implementation for the glory of God and the good of the world. Amen.